Accurate weapons. Whatever weapon you choose, you must put accuracy at the top of the list when choosing your weapon. I don't buy into the mantra that precision accuracy isn't that important in hunting. Many hunters think a two-inch group at 100 yards is acceptable for accuracy for a hunting rifle. A mule deer's vital is nine inches, they say. It is, but what they fail to consider is that a two-inch group was shot under ideal conditions. I've never killed a big mule deer under ideal conditions. Typically, I'm lying across a steep slope trying to dig my boots into the ground while keeping my pack from slipping as I steady my rifle on a buck that is about to spin and run into cover. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Good morning, Rockcast people. Robbie Denning here at the mic. Late October. Wanted to get you guys an episode out between hunts here. Uh, got a few things to cover. A uh, great article just came out in Y-O File, W-Y-O, F-I-L-E. I think that's an online magazine. The author was Mike Koshmerl. Hope I didn't butcher that. K-O-S-H-M-R-L. And it is the featured top story. Western Wyoming's Big Buck Country Sees Slowest Hunt in 30 Years. I'm not going to read the whole article, but I'll read some of the meat and potatoes of it. Encourage you to jump over to Y-O File and check this article out yourself. In fact, there's always some good stuff on there about Wyoming. Let's see here. Gary Freilich's calm demeanor shifted to a hustle for the hour that a steady stream of severed heads made it through his check station on the last Saturday of deer hunting season. The Thane-based Wyoming Game and Fish Department biologist and his colleague, Kelsey Hayes, checked one ungulate dead head after another. The red-shirted duo was posted up where the Grays River Road exits the Wyoming Salt River Mountain Rangers. This fall marked his 30th straight season staffing the historic check station. The mountains rising over Freilich's post grow a lot of big bucks, but 2023 was a little different. This was the slowest hunt since 1993 without a doubt, Freilich said during a lull in checking bull elk and buck mule deer. The numbers tell the story. Gray's River is known and widely promoted as a destination to hunt trophy class mule deer. During a typical fall, more than 100 hunters roll by the historic Grays River check station with a buck they've killed. The count was 120 as recently as 2022. This fall, just 31 buck muley deadheads were checked. That's a 74% decline, Freilich said. In some specific hunt areas, the decline was deeper yet. Last fall, Freilich and his colleagues checked 100 hunter-killed mule deer out of Unit 144, which covers the northern Wyoming range. This year, just 17 came out of that same zone, marking an 83% drop. That complete crash was predictable. The winter of 2022-23 was a killer unlike any biologist had ever seen from the Wyoming range mule deer and pronghorn in the adjoining Green River Basin. Roughly three in four adult pronghorn died, and the mule deer death rates were nearly as bad, 70% mortality in does and 60% for bucks. Virtually all the 2022 born fawns of both species perished. Freilich, of course, knew going into this 2023 check station duties that he was likely to see a lot fewer of these deer. Jumping down a little bit here. Freilich has also seen big fluctuation in deer populations and hunter success over the three decades he's been posted up on the banks of the Grays River. Recovery from all the current crash is likely to take longer than those in the past, he said, like the winter of 2016-17. Wyoming's trying to help the herd recover, though the strategies the state selected under pressure have scant scientific support, like killing more mountain lions, Hunters, too, are trying to help by giving up their tags, though that's also unlikely to have any effect on the deer population come future. The trajectory of the herd is dictated by does producing fawns and fawns surviving, Freilich said. It's not based on bucks at all. Freilich asked most hunters who stopped by whether they were seeing does with fawns. 
One group of Oregon hunters said they saw a lot, maybe 50. We saw a lot of twins, one man reported. Freilich and Hayes were encouraged. Whether big buck land bounces back quickly mostly depends on what Mother Nature has in store for those young ungulates in the months and years ahead. If we have at least two years of high overwinter survival, Freilich said, we'll start seeing an uptick. You can read that entire article, and I encourage you to jump over there. I probably only read about half of it. Uh, but yeah, no surprise at all. We knew this this spring. Um, it's not that hard to figure out. When you're losing a lot of deer through the winter, it's going to show up in the fall hunting seasons. And uh, for me, I don't think I've checked in on hunt recap since archery got over. Um, but yeah, I've hunted about eight days um, during the just OTC seasons here in Idaho, OTC for residents. And um, yep, definitely down. I've seen, seen about seven bucks over the eight hunting days. So what's that, about a buck a day? Now, um, to put that in a historical historical perspective, it's funny. Everybody's talking about the 90s now. It, it, you know, guys from, from Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, I hear them, every once in a while somebody, somebody will tell me how good the hunting was in the 90s. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was there. It was not, but I think it's just kind of relative to what's going on right now, which is sad. You know, it's, it's sad, but you know, the nineties the were tough, you know, from 93 on after that hard winter, it, it was tough. And there were some big bucks around, like I've said, after hard winters, um, the, 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 the preceding, uh, excuse me, the following years after hard winters, you do, you do see some big bucks for sure. We'll talk about why here in just a minute, but, uh, you know, so in the mid nineties, yeah, it got pretty good for a couple of years for seeing big bucks but man deer deer numbers were still down you know success rates were down it was tough and we didn't really start healing up until later in the 90s with you know better better weather better winters you know some time for the deer to recover um so uh that th this hunt over the last three weeks that i've done seeing seven bucks in eight hunting days i might have seen double that maybe not even quite that um it, it's always hard to find bucks in october it really is especially if the weather's warm and it's been very warm the last week or two we did have some snow on the opener that was helpful um i did pass up a few kind of mid 160 type bucks um and i you know I, I i found deer where i should have found deer put it that way i just didn't see as many um as we already know what happens after hard winters you lose your fawns of the previous year so those would be the two points this year that's one of the main reasons hunter success rates drop so much after hard winters is because the majority of the harvest in a lot of units except for maybe you know trophy units is uh, two points uh, they're the easiest most accessible and uh, so the harvest is high so when those are no longer available the hunter success rate drops a lot and uh and again, in a, in a, in a trophy unit, like with, with what we just read of, of the Gray's River and everything, that might not be quite the case because people aren't going there to shoot a two point. Some will, and they don't comment in the article, you know, the age class of the bucks they were checking, but you know, I can almost guarantee you what, what's left after a hard winter, you lose your fawns, you lose your older age class deer. So what's left are your, your mid range deer, your deer, you know, two, three, four-year-old deer those are the ones that make it through they're not old they're not young um, and they're, they're going to survive at a higher rate so that's what's left and that's exactly what I'm seeing I'm not seeing any old bucks I'm not seeing any young bucks I'm just kind of middle-aged bucks and that's why I think after a hard winter within the next couple of years you know some of those bucks that that, that made it and, and I just my own theory that you know genetically they're better bucks that's why they made it you know heavier they were heavier fawns you know we've talked about that on other podcasts so their their survival rate is higher you know they're just a bigger deer and uh so that's why i think in the next couple of years although we're going to have a much smaller deer population there will be some really big bucks that come out of these winter kill units uh the only unknown is the weather we could get another killer winter you don't usually get them two years in a row but um, anyways, so that that is my hunt wrap up and uh, checking Instagram. That's about what I'm seeing, too. You know, some of these 
guys that post. I, I know the states they live in. I, I know a little bit about where they hunt. And the guys that are hunting the winter kill, uh, they're they're struggling. But there are some good bucks coming out of the, the non-winter kill areas and um, been, been kind of fun to watch. Let's see. Um, Travis has not been on for, what, about a month? I think he had that uh, episode with uh, Dr. Larson uh, doing the wrap-up of the control study between the deer that were fed and versus the deer that were not fed. You can jump back a few episodes and listen to that. Um, gives some some good evidence on feeding deer, and it can be effective. It's also very expensive, so it's it's hard to apply on a wide scale, but we, we can't say it doesn't work. Uh, we kind of knew that, though. Listen to that. Um, catch up on some of Sam's Tipsy Tuesday episodes. You know, OnX is a Rockcast uh, sponsor, and uh, he had an episode, I think it was last Tipsy Tuesday, uh, that uh, we, we brought on OnX to explain their new integration with all the major brands of cell cameras and how you can now manage them all within one app, which is great um, because I, I've been using Moultrie the last few years, um, their uh, uh, cell cams, just, just on a real limited basis. I've only got a couple of places that they're, that they work and they're worth putting in and, um, it, their app is fine. It's, it's great, but I've also got some stealth cams out there too. Um, I've had two of them, uh, cell cams. And so I'm managing them in a different app and well, that's kind of a pain. You're jumping between two apps. You're trying to navigate the different features and of, of the app and, you know, how you filter in one and, you know, how you set your, your, your trigger speed in another one, um, or your time delay. Um, it's, it's just nice if you can manage it all in one place. So Onyx, uh, I haven't got to try it yet, but listen to Sam's episode. I'm going to, I'm going to try to get it integrated here this winter to where all my cameras are on in Onyx. And then I've only got one app to check. We'll see how that goes. Um, let's see, uh, Travis though, I had mentioned him, uh, he's, he's been hunting. And, uh, as I keep saying on the Rockcast, it's a great time to be an elk hunter and, uh, Travis and his wife got a great bull. If you want to jump over to his Instagram page, that's Natural Born Hunter. Uh, we call him not really Born a Hunter, but Natural Born Hunter. And I, I, he, he abbreviates it. I think it's NTRL, BRN, Hunter, something like that. But just type in Travis Hobbs on Instagram. He's got a public page. You can see that on there. Heck of a bull. Looks like he's had a little bit of history of it with it um, over the last couple of years. Uh, him and some friends. I mean, heck of a bull. Um, his wife with their little baby alongside, Hannah, um, uh, took this bull. I don't know how they pulled that off, um, but they did. And uh, go check that out. And um, as I had mentioned earlier this year, uh, great time to be hunting cow elk in a lot of places. Not every place, but, you know, cow elk licenses are more readily available than bull elk licenses and um, if you're really looking for the meat it's a good time to lean on elk they're doing great in a lot of places and um, you know if you're if you're not worried about having a, a buck this year it's a good year to to let them walk that's what i've been doing by the way out of those all those bucks i talked about i think i i definitely could have killed the two best ones i had them right below me at a couple hundred yards at one point and then the other five that i saw were stockable but you know good good year to let them walk for sure um no shame if you decide not to but it's a good year if you have a cow elk license in a lot of units to get out. We did that just this week. Um, I've got my son. He's 17. He's got a friend uh, that uh, we've been taking hunting for years. His friend, you know, doesn't have a hunting family uh, to take him out. So we've always adopted him during the season. And since cow elk tags are pretty accessible, uh, that's what we focused on. And we did... Um, a two-day hunt this weekend with the boys, and I got one. Um, it was it was great, and I had a good time alongside the boys. Um, Cash has killed one before. Um, his his friend. This was his first real chance to get a shot at one, and and he missed. But you know that's that goes with the territory when you're when you're starting out. So uh, so we did get one down. Um, if you want to go look on my Instagram page, I got that on there. Uh, just a short little reel. Uh, me and the boys are in there. Um, highly encourage you to get um, get some of your some of your kids' friends out that maybe don't hunt. It's a great way to to promote the sport and um, you know get more support for hunting. And 
hunting's getting beat up big time. If you're not a member of HOWL, H-O-W-L, uh, jump on there. We are a supporter of HOWL. They're on the front line all the time of, of legislative issues um, up against hunting. Don't be naive. Everybody that, that tells me that hunting's under no threat don't, e- don't even know the threats that are out there. You can jump on HOWL's page and check out all everything that's going on. And some of the most scary things I see are happening are at the commission level um, with basically people that are not really hunting Pro hunting, getting on commissions and having a say on how wildlife's going to be managed. I think that's how the antis are going to try to do it over the next few years. But uh, HAL is great for uh, staying on the leading edge of that. Um, they're easy to support. They don't just need your money. They need your time. You can send emails out on these different issues that they're fighting. And uh, and we need more guys doing that. Um, John Stallone, I had him on the podcast here uh, and, and Charles Whitwam. Oh, back in August, and they, they explained the HAL concept a little bit. And um, I like the way John puts it. It's not so much that we need more hunters, but we need more active hunters. And, um, and, I, and I agree with him. However, there's a lot of young men out there that don't are not growing up in hunting families. Maybe they don't even have a father in the home. And hunting is a great way to, to help these boys become men. Um, hunting helped clean up my life as a young man with, you know, some of the stuff I was messing around with, you know, drugs, alcohol, things like that. Hunting gave me a, a path forward and I knew if I wanted to succeed at it, I needed to be clean. And I walked away from all that stuff as a, you know, 18, 19 year old guy and really have never gone back. And, uh, and so hunting can, can give a young man direction like that. I've seen that with some of the young men I've introduced to hunting and I'm just getting Cash's friend out. It's, it's just great to see him. I mean, he gets to hunt a couple of days a year, only if we take him and it's even a little bit foreign to him, but it's neat to just see him kind of come alive. You know, they, you know, teenage boys are, they don't, they don't talk to their old man very much. You know, they're kind of quiet. I spent two days with them. You know, they probably could have put all the words they said in one hand. And, uh, but boy, when we got into the elk it uh it lit them up and they were pretty excited um even though you know they didn't get one they they they, they got some shooting in and um it's it it it's how a boy becomes a man i think so if you get a chance and you got kids grab some of their friends take them out with you and uh, i think the very first year we took cash's friend uh, he hadn't even taken hunter's safety i just grabbed him and took him along let him see what it was all about and boy the next year he signed up for hunter safety um and uh he went through the course and uh was was just just rip rip roaring ready to go and uh you know that's hunting's future right there and uh, i'm not just going to subscribe to the whole thing that we don't need to pass hunting on you know there's too many hunters i'm not going to do it that's too much to risk um and uh so so think about that if you get a chance to take a young one out it's very rewarding and um it'll it'll be some of your best hunts it has been for me so let's see wrapping all that up um travis and i will be hunting next week uh don't know if we'll do a podcast or not uh maybe maybe when we get back we can and um we'll uh we'll let you know how it goes so i've got in my hand a copy of my book, Hunting Big Mule Deer, How to Take the Best Buck of Your Life. And we are going to jump into part five, Essential Gear for the Big Mule Deer Hunter. The Rockcast is powered by the number one GPS hunting app in the industry, Onyx Hunt. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you. And that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, 
Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. Besides your ability to find places big mule deer roam, to hunt smart and hard, and be the bulldog of persistence, your gear will play an important role in your success. You can't trust your hard-earned hunts to gear that doesn't perform. As a rule of thumb, I buy the best gear I can afford. When I was younger, I often shopped at the Army Surplus Store, used optics that weren't from the top of the heap, and drove old trucks. However, I always bought and used good gear. I killed many of my big bucks using gear that wasn't part of any trend, but it always performed. As my financial outlook has improved over the years, so has my gear. In the following section, I outline the essential gear every big mule deer hunter needs. I don't cover every single piece of gear, just the majors that can make or break a hunt. This gear has been refined and tested over three decades in all types of mule deer country. Weapon Systems To kill big mule deer, I think you have to hunt with all three weapon types, rifle, muzzleloader, and archery. Why? The answer is threefold. First, mule deer managers across the West have to figure out how to sell the most licenses with the least impact to the resource. Muzzleloader and archery seasons typically have lower success rates than rifle seasons. By offering these seasons, more people can hunt with less impact on mule deer. The second reason a big mule deer hunter must consider all three weapon types is that the draw huds have become so low across the West. If you're able to apply only for rifle seasons, your pool of good hunts just became much smaller. Finally, by hunting archery and muzzleloader seasons, you can hunt mule deer at certain times of the year when they are more vulnerable. For example, the early archery seasons take advantage of the fact that big mule deer are still using the most open portions of their summer range and are easier to find. Some states like Idaho, Utah, and New Mexico offer early muzzleloader seasons. I've shot several good bucks, including a 190 typical, just in the last few years on early muzzleloader hunts. Other states offer hunts during the rut for muzzleloader and archery. One hunt just opened in southeast Idaho that allows archers to hunt some of the best big mule deer country the West has until late November. Rifle hunters lost that hunt in about 1970, so by becoming a proficient ar archer, you can almost step back in time. Accurate weapons. Whatever weapon you choose, you must put accuracy at the top of the list when choosing your weapon. I don't buy into the mantra that precision accuracy isn't that important in hunting. Many hunters think a 2-inch group at 100 yards is acceptable for accuracy for a hunting rifle. A mule deer's vital is 9 inches, they say. It is, but what they fail to consider is that a 2-inch group was shot under ideal conditions. I've never killed a big mule deer under ideal conditions. Typically, I'm lying across a steep slope trying to dig my boots into the ground while keeping my pack from slipping as I steady my rifle on a buck that is about to spin and run into cover. Add in the fact that my adrenaline is peaking, the wind is blowing, and the buck just so happens to be the only big deer I've seen in a month, I'll take the half inch at a 100 yards rifle any day. It just lessens my chance of missing, especially as range increases. Two years ago while muzzleloader hunting, I found an excellent typical buck grossing over 190 inches in a Colorado area thick with pinyon pine and juniper. I could see the buck only by glassing across the canyon from two miles away. To kill him, I'd have to get in his living room. I noticed that he'd cross a power line cut about 30 yards wide on his way to and from his bedding area each day. That was the only time he was really in the open. He never crossed in exactly the same place, but rather in an area about 300 yards wide in the cut. He'd be visible less than a minute before reaching the cover on the other side. A clear shot would be near impossible unless I could catch him in the cut. I sneaked into the cut late one afternoon and sat down in the middle of that 300-yard area that he'd been crossing. I was shooting a conky muzzleloader that year and had fired hundreds of rounds preseason developing a load that would put two consecutive shots in a one-inch group at 100 yards with a peep sight. That's extreme accuracy for a muzzleloader. I was confident I could kill the buck if he showed up before dark, as the furthest I'd have to shoot was about 150 yards. I sat about two hours as the sun sank low in the west. A huge trunk of a juniper tree broke up my silhouette. The shadows were slowly becoming long and the woods quieter. 
I'd seen or heard nothing other than a chipmunk that had scampered by a few feet away, totally unaware of my presence. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Suddenly, I saw movement about 100 yards up the hill in the cover. I had to duck low to see under the low-hanging branches, but I was sure I'd seen legs of several deer moving towards the cut. I raised my muzzleloader and checked the light coming through the peep. It was a little dark, so I unscrewed the adjustable aperture to let more light in. I was a little nervous and dropped the aperture. When I reached forward to pick it up, I caught more movement. Just stepping into the cut was a giant buck at 120 yards looking straight at me. He'd seen my movement. He was not the typical I'd seen before, but a much better non-typical. I quickly judged his spread at well over 30 inches and his gross score in the 220s. I got the gun up on my knee, but he had me pegged and took a step forward, which put him in a slight depression. Only his back line and head were now visible. He was only one more step from the cover, and it wasn't looking good for a clear shot. Just then, another buck stepped out into the cut. It was the typical I'd been expecting. He immediately read the body language of the bigger deer and turned and stared directly at me. A good buck in hand is better than a dozen in the bush, so I swung the gun right, held in the pocket behind his front leg, and gently touched the trigger. When the smoke cleared, I glimpsed the two bucks diving into the cover. It was getting dark, so I got right on their tracks. I found a few specks of blood. About 100 yards later, I noticed one set of tracks veered left. Studying the ground, I found a faint spot of blood with just those tracks, so I quietly but quickly followed. Just a few minutes later, ahead in the broken cover, I could see the typical buck about 70 yards ahead checking his back trail. I had only a rump shot, but knew he'd already been hit, so I held on the base of his tail and touched the trigger. He disappeared behind a cloud of smoke. I moved ahead and determined I'd hit him again. It was now almost dark, so I slowly backed out. I was up at 4 a.m. after a short night of sleep and back on the mountain before first light. The full moon sank low in the western sky as I made the mile hike back into the area. As I picked up his track again, the sun hadn't yet risen. I tracked slowly and methodically with my gun ready at all times. It took an hour to pick his track from the litter of the forest floor. More deer had moved during the night, making his track harder to follow through the thick juniper jungle. About 150 yards into the tracking job, I found the buck piled up in three-foot-tall grass. By the distance he'd covered and the length of his stride, I determined that he died within a minute or two of my last shot. Rolling him over, I could see my first shot had hit exactly where I'd aimed, in the pocket behind his front leg. But his angle when he looked at me was such that the bullet just nicked his pericardium, the membrane around the heart, as it angled back and exited behind his paunch. The second bullet had hit within an inch of the base of his tail and had completed the job. Had I been shooting the typical four inches at 100 yards muzzleloader common in the deer woods, I can't say for sure that I have killed this buck. I could tell you five more stories where the difference between punching my tag and entering friends and entertaining friends with tag soup came down to accuracy. In the real world of big buck hunting, where tension is high and mere seconds count, accuracy is king. I'm currently shooting a night mountain muzzleloader in 45 caliber. This gun consistently puts two shots under an inch at 100 yards with a peep sight. Be a good shot. You should have noticed by now that all the hunters who influenced me were great shots. Grandpa, Dad, Carrie Hansen, Kurt Darner, they wouldn't be great hunters if they weren't great shots. In the real world of buck hunting, shooting skill is everything. Even if you buy the most accurate weapon possible, you still have to shoot thousands of rounds to become a good shot. I'm not a great shot. Proficient, yes, but not great. I'm not calm like those men I wrote about, so it takes more effort for me. I've worn out about three 7mm Remington Magnums in my career. I shoot up to 2,000 arrows per year and have fired thousands of rounds through muzzleloaders. I've got a long way to go, but I've also come a long way. I don't agree that shooting off a bench dress isn't real-world hunting practice. Most of my shots in open mule deer country have been off a dead rest like a pack, a rock, or a tree, or shooting... So shooting from a bench rest has plenty of application in the real world. It's on the bench that you master your breathing, heart rate, and trigger squeeze. I do agree that you need to practice plenty off of the bench too, and I do. I absolutely love to shoot offhand at rolling tires and water-filled jugs. In some cases, fastest man on the trigger gets the buck, and this type of practice makes, you, makes handling your weapon second nature. Shooting is something you can involve your whole family in. 
Being a good shot also comes down to knowing when to shoot and when to pass. Some of my misses were on shots that couldn't be made on impossible shots, so I don't beat myself up too badly on those. Running shots beyond 100 yards, moving deer beyond 200 yards, offhand and Hail Mary shots should be avoided. Knowing when to shoot comes down to hunting bucks rather than either jump shooting or pushing bucks, which almost always results in shooting at a moving animal and more misses and wounding loss. If you employ the strategies I've written about in this book, you're likely to either get a close range shot, my average range on big mule deer is less than 200 yards, or have a crack at an undisturbed buck that doesn't know he's in imminent danger. If you hunt right, your hits will skyrocket while your misses will plummet. If my memory is right, I've made about 90% of the shots I've taken on big mule deer over the last 20 years. I'm currently shooting a Cooper Excalibur and 7mm Remington Magnum that can deliver three shots into a half-inch group. A Knight Mountaineer 45 caliber muzzleloader that shoots one-inch groups with a peep at 100 yards. And an Athens bow that can keep my first shot in the kill zone out to 70 yards. Do what it takes to buy good weapons and achieve the most accuracy possible from there. You won't regret it. Okay, so that was my... Uh, chapter on weapons and i just want to remind people that was written in 2014 so a few things have changed um i'm no longer uh shooting that um cooper um i only shot that for a couple seasons i really liked it but it was about a nine pound gun which made it shoot very 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 well but i didn't like packing it i'm more of a seven and a half to eight pound gun person then so the next year i switched off to the same gun i'm still shooting a, a cooper um let's see tie summit is what they're called the tie stands for titanium i'm shooting it in 270 winchester short mag i've talked about that on other episodes um i i, I don't dial and so i want to shoot as flat of a rifle as I can and a, and a 270 does that uh, the, the Winchester short does that um, if you look at the trajectory on those it's it's like a laser beam out to about five six hundred um, which is as far as I would ever shoot at a mule deer and uh, yeah there are rifles that shoot flatter than that beyond those yardages but you're hard pressed to find one that shoots flatter with with within that yardage and what that allows me to do is uh, use hash marks in my scope and um, it's great how my hash marks have, have worked out. I'm shooting a Swarovski uh, Z5 3 to 18, and my hash marks um, have have worked out where my, my my center crosshair is 100 and 200. I don't even have to change because that shoots so flat. So my center crosshair is 100 to 200. My uh, second hash mark is 300. My third hash mark is 400, and my fifth hash mark is 500. It's just the way it came out. Now, they weren't quite exact. I mean, it might have been like, you know, four, 420 or something like that, or, you know, 490 for the 500, but it was close enough. I mean, that's one reason I've, I've, I'm shooting the 270 Winchester short. Um, and, and so then when I look through my scope, I don't even need to look at my dope card. I know for all the yardages I'll shoot, I, my, my hashes and my center crosshairs is going to be 200, 300, 400, 500. And I, I want to do everything while I'm looking through the scope. I, I have not been around long range hunting a lot, but I have been around it a little bit. And I have seen a couple of big bucks get away because guys were screwing around with their scopes. Now that's just that individual situation. I know some of you guys are really fast with that. I know that, you know, if you're proficient with it, you can you can be very, very fast. But for me, you know, it's just, I haven't needed long range hunting and um, all the controversy that it's, it's stirred up. So um, I, looking back over the all my years of hunting, like I said in here, my average distance is still about 200 yards. Um, and I've never shot anything over 460. So this, this gun has served me well, and, and it's a dream to pack. Um, let's see, what else is uh, in this chapter to recap? Um, still shooting that night muzzleloader. And um, I haven't had a muzzleloader tag for a few years, but I, I like having a, a muzzleloader um, just in case a hunt pops up that uh, gives you good dates and ha almost always has better draws. Um, and while we're on that subject, Idaho right now has got a survey out there, Idaho Fish and Game, on 
changing up what muzzleloader bullets they'll allow. Idaho is stuck with the traditional muzzleloader rules. Now, they're not truly traditional. Nobody's out there really hunting with flintlocks. I mean, if you want to get in into semantics here, none of us are traditional. But Idaho has stayed with you know, you know, no, no scopes, peep, peep sights or iron sights only, um, loose powder, um, no 209s, so percussion only, either number 11s or musket caps. Um, in an effort to keep, to, to limit the distance. Okay. And, and I think it's a good thing because if you, this is why it's a good thing. You can still get decent muzzleloader tags in Idaho on our draw system because the odds aren't 5%. Now, some of them are that are in the trophy units, but you know, there's still a lot of units that you can draw every couple of years with a muzzleloader that allow, you know, some great dates. And that's because a lot of guys don't want to hunt with a hundred yard gun. And that's really where we're going with hunting right now. I, I think is, you know, we got to, we got a, a section of hunters that just want more limited quota um, to improve, especially deer hunting. And while it probably will improve deer hunting, it definitely is going to come at a cost, and that's your ability to hunt. And I'm not one of those guys that wants to sit on the sidelines for five to ten years just so I have a chance at a better buck. And so I, you know, I'm I'm warming up more and more to equipment limitations. And so Idaho has um, got that limitation in there with everything I just said, but they're their bullet limitation really for me has been what's limited the yardage the most is because really you can you can only shoot a full-size conical has to be fully lead no alloy no jacketed bullets and you know there were some reasons for that when they come up with that rule i don't know eight ten years ago lead at typical muzzleloader velocities performs very well um a lot of of terminal uh, performance there, as in lead opens way up and makes big holes and typically gets good penetration. It seems to fragment just the right amount at muzzleloader velocity, so you get still get this big, heavy core of a bullet pushing through, but you got you know fragments of the bullet coming off, uh, creating peripheral damage. Um, it's it's just good stuff. I can see why Idaho did it. Um, but we don't want to say that, you know, the jacketed bullets and, you know, some, some of the other alloys out there don't perform. Um, you know, I've, I've killed deer with them and I know a lot of people, um, have too. And so Idaho has got a survey on their website. They're taking, um, a comment on this and I encourage you to get on there and comment on it. And what they're thinking about doing is dropping the rule that it has to be, uh, fully led that it can be an alloy, it can be jacketed. And the reason the reason they're doing it is and, and I understand this, is there's not very many full lead options out there. Now yeah, if you want to get on the internet and you know go to, go to the bull shop or you know some of the different full lead options that are out there, you can order them. I get all that and I've done it. Um, but you know, let's face it. A lot of guys are not hardcore, and 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 Travis and I have talked about that a lot. We don't want everybody to be hardcore. We're fine with the guy that's like, hey, I think I'm gonna go uh, muzzleloader hunting next week. I should probably get my muzzleloader out. And he goes down to Sportsman's Warehouse um, or Cabela's. There's just not a lot of selection for full lead bullets. They're really hard. Power Belt makes a version. That's really the only ones I've seen in the stores around here. And so it's becoming very hard for guys to find bullets is really what it's got down to. So by changing that rule, um, th then we're able to shoot uh, more off the shelf kind of stuff. And for me, the reason I'm going to go ahead and vote for it is when you're I have no problem with the lead bullets. Like I said, they have great terminal performance, great terminal performance. I'd be amazed at the holes that they that a full lead bullet will blow through an animal. Um, but when you only have a couple of, of, of choices for bullets, your accuracy suffers, If unless it's just the bullet that that gun likes. I mean, everybody in the reloading world knows that you, know, you can have an excellent bullet, and for whatever reason, that, that gun doesn't like it. And it's no different with muzzleloaders, you know, the harmonics of the barrel, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, I've fine-tuned 
Uh, you know, Idaho requires um, granular powder, which is no problem with me because I like granular powder because I can fine tune it down to just a couple of grains if I want to. It's a little bit harder with pelletized powder, although it can be done, but it's it's just harder. Where you know if I want to shoot 90 grains and and I and 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 I think the accuracy can be better, I, I can try 95 or I can jump down to 85 or 110, 105, whatever I want to do. So, um, but when you're only limited to to you know one or two bullet choices that variable's out. You can't just swap around bullet weights because as many as many of you know, the, 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 if you have multiple bullet weights, you're just more likely to land on an accurate load. And so um, I'm all for having more choice in muzzleloader bullets. Um, each to their own though, you know, you might be against it, but yeah, and you can get on there and, and make your comments, but I encourage everybody to kind of think that through and, um, uh, get on there and give, give Idaho Fish and Game your feedback. You know, they're asking for it. Let's give it to them. And wherever it comes out, well, then that's what I'm going to support. You know, if the public wants fully led, well, then that's what I'm going to go with. But, um, I, I would like to see it change just so I have more accuracy options because the bullet, choice is is still not going to make a long range muzzleloader it's it's the open sights that is limiting 99% of guys on muzzleloading and you can put whatever you, Idaho I don't think is entertaining sabots at all but even if they did I you're still not going to be shooting with open sights at 200, 300 yards, you know, you might find one guy in a hundred that can do it and you better have really good eyes, really young eyes. Um, but it's, it, most guys are still going to be limited to that, you know, 75 to 125 yard range because that's what the siding system allows. So I think if I, as long as Idaho stays with, um, a requirement for, for peep or open sites, I think our, our odds will stay good on the hunts and uh, truly keep, to the tradition of muzzleloader hunting, which is which is shorter range. So, anyways, I, t- I talked about muzzleloaders in that chapter in there. Um, take taking a few really good bucks with muzzleloaders. I, that's why I keep one in the closet. Um, talked about tire shooting in there. If you actually get my book and read it, you'll see there's a picture in there of my son. Uh, man, he's about four years old. Uh, I would take him up, of course, put him in a safe place. You know, kind of put him off to my right, and then he could roll a tire in front of me. So he's kind of rolling a tire diagonally in front of me. And, um, I would do this at ranges of 25 to hundred yards. And it, um, it does two things. It, it gets, it gets you used to shooting at moving game. And as I said in the chapter, you know, I don't, I don't shoot at any running game beyond hundred yards or any moving game beyond 200. I, I ultimately, I, I want them stopped. You know, I want, I want a high odds shot and, um, you know, broadside still is the best, but things don't always work out that way. So I like to practice at rolling tires, uh, because it, 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 it gets you used to that. And you also find that, you know, under 200 yards, you do not have to lead much at all, at all, you know, with a mod, with a modern firearm. Um, but the second thing it does, and I think this is just as important. And, and, and I saw this on this elk hunt that I mentioned that I took the boys on is it gets you fast with your rifle. And um, you might, you know, practice for years with your rifle off a bench, you know, uh, which, as I said, I think has value. Um, You you know, trying all the different, you know, prone positions, uh, seated, kneeling, you know, do all that stuff for sure. But when when you're hunting and everything happens quickly, as it often does in big buck hunting, you got to be fast with your rifle. And I'm talking getting a shell, uh, a shell in the chamber, uh, a cartridge in the chamber, opening your scope caps. If you're in inclement weather, I always take my scope caps off if it's nice weather, but if it's inclement weather, I've got you know, Butler Creek's uh, scope covers. I've got to, I've got to flip those off quickly, getting the safety off. I mean, it all sounds basic, but I've lost bucks because of that process, just being too slow. And as I've gotten older, I've hunted with guys that have that have lost them because they just couldn't get ready. And back to that elk hunt, that's what happened with the boys. They just could not get ready. We jumped these elk in a quakey pocket and they, they started to take off. We had them at 80 yards and the boys were just behind me about 
five steps and the elk were off to my right. So the boys could totally shoot. I was not obstructing, you know, and I told them as soon as I saw the elk, um, actually my son saw him first. I had seen the elk at a distance. We stalked in at about a mile, but I lost track of him in the cover and come up over a little rise. I was looking to my left, the elk were to the right. My son saw him and I heard him whisper back there and I looked over and there they were. Well, you know, I didn't want to shoot first. I wanted the boys to. So I told him, um, get a cartridge in your rifle. And they just kind of froze. They weren't doing much. And then, and, you know, we're only talking a second or two delay, but then they went ahead and got cartridges in their rifle. You know, we don't, we don't walk together when there's, there's cartridges in our chamber. So they got that done, but then they didn't shoot. Well, by now the elk have moved out of the quakies. They're headed downhill. They're, they, 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 they kind of circled around below me. And, and now the boys couldn't really shoot because I was in the way. And so, I'm our, and these elk are, you know, at a hundred. Now they're running. I'm thinking we're going to lose them. And, uh, so I went ahead and, uh, uh, dropped to my knee and, uh, popped one. Um, I heard, I heard the bullet hit and for a couple of days I had been telling the boys, look, if we get into a herd of elk, we, we don't want to number one, wound anything. And number two, shoot too many elk that can happen in a herd of elk. It really can. I've seen this with cow elk hunts, you know, cause they're always in big bunches in late October. And so I had been kind of telling them that, that, you know, if we get into a herd of elk, pick one, preferably towards the back of the herd, don't shoot into the herd. It seems like that you're just going to shoot and they're going to drop. They rarely do. It seems like. And so you end up shooting, and just in the recoil of the gun, you lose track of which elk you shot at. So I've kind of learned when you, when you got a herd going, just shoot once. You make that first shot count, which you should do all the time. But because after that, they're gonna unless it drops, they're gonna get mixed in together, and then you're gonna have to wait and see if you get a straggler out there and if that's the one you hit. So I had been conditioning the boys on that, be real careful. So I'm sure that's what was going through their mind when we jumped these elk. You know, this is a herd of. I don't even know, 30, 40, 50, I mean, a bunch. And uh, so back to the story, the elk circle around below me. I drop to a knee, take a shot at one of the back ones. I heard it hit. And just like I illustrated, then I lost track of her. I couldn't see her, but I thought that's okay. You know, I know I, know I got a bullet in her. It should be a good bullet. And I turn around and told the boys, come on, we, 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 we got to move up because the elk had gone below us. And now the rise of the hill in front of us was blocking. We couldn't see him. So I told the boys, guns on safety, guns up, move up here. So we moved up. We only had to move about 15 yards when we come out on a little rise. And now we could see the elk. Now they're at about 150, 200. And, uh, and, 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 and moving away, not quite at a dead run, but you know, they're, they are at a fast trot. And so I got the boys up. I said, kneel down. We're in a pile of rocks. I said, lean against the rocks, get steady. I said, let's wait and see if they stop because they're, they're moving too fast for the boys to shoot at with their skill set. And the elk went out at about 200, 220, and they started to slow down. And of course, you know, I'm scanning the herd too, thinking, where's my elk? Did she drop? You know, I'm looking for one limping. And, um, the elk goes out to about 220 and they did slow down just a little bit and they turned around and looked at us. I said, okay, boys, there you go. Pick one out right behind the shoulder. I said, mid-body height. Nathan's shooting a .30-06. Cash is shooting a 7 mag. I've got them sighted in for 200 yards. So I just told them about mid-body, right behind the shoulder, and then I got quiet because I've learned in guiding that you can get guys way too amped up if you keep chatting and talking and getting nervous, you make them nervous. So I got quiet and nothing happened. No shots, no nothing. <laughs> I look over at the boys. I'm like, you guys, they're going to go. You got to shoot. And about that time they started to move and, the, and, and, and really picked up speed then. They, they went into a run and no shot, no shot. The boys did not get a shot at, at, that, at that herd. Well, then up out of the bottom comes a lone elk moving slow and i thought okay that's that's the elk i just shot that's got to be 
So I said, guys, there's a lone one right there. Let's make sure we get that one. And, you know, I'm pretty sure it's mine because it's it's going slow. I can't figure out why else an elk would be going slow. It's not really limping or anything, but it's not keeping up with the herd. And so my son's friend got a shot, missed, cast shot, hit it, dropped it. And um, so the elk ran over the hill. They were gone. And, of course, you know, we gave them another half an hour. We worked our way around the hill. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't find them. So we, we went over there to where the elk was, and I, and I told the boys, you know, first thing we got to do is basically – what did we fire? Three or four shots there. I said, we got to make sure this is the only elk we hit. I'm pretty sure it is, but we got to make sure. So we, ba- we, we backtracked from that elk and found first blood. And, you know, I'm 99% sure this is the elk I shot. And uh, we, we, we tracked it out, and I put, I put a, a boy on my right at 20 yards and a boy on my left at 20 yards and we just moved up through the brush where the herd had been to make sure there were no other blood trails and there wasn't uh we we found nothing we spent about 15 20 minutes doing that and of course i'm on the main blood the only blood and i track it right to the dead elk and uh, i'm like okay so we we got one and we didn't hit any others good job guys that was the goal no no wounded elk and uh, so then, then the question comes up with cash is like, well, dad, if I hit that, is that, that's still your elk. You hit it first. I'm just like, yeah, you know, the way, the way we do it is with first blood, whoever draws first blood, you know, tags the elk. I said, and, and you know, I'm pretty sure I, I've hit this elk, but let's, let's look at it and make sure. Cause you know, it could, uh, maybe I missed and maybe you hit the elk, you know, you just never know. I mean, hunting can be confusing. It really can. So um, we, we get the elk all laid out and, and get looking here. And I can see where I've hit it in the brisket and he's hit it in the neck. And I can also see a couple of spots where there's just a little bit of tiny blood seeping out, like almost like it got shot with a shotgun. And I, and then I figured it out when his friend shot, he shot low and he hit in the rocks right in front of it. And I think that was just a couple of rock fragments or bullet fragments. So anyways, um, I tagged the elk, you know, I, I had hit it, drawn first blood. Um, we still had the rest of the day of the hunt for the boys. And, um, we, we did do all that and, uh, we never, we never got back on the elk and then the hunt ended. So the reason for all that story, besides we like hunting stories is talking with the boys a little bit later on like, how come you guys didn't shoot? You know, you had, you had elk you know, broadside pretty much stopped a couple of times and they said they just didn't know what to do. They were just, it was just confusing and they were, you know, fumbling with their rifles a little bit and, you know, stuff like that. Well, this goes back to what I just read about rolling at tires. That's probably the, the, the biggest thing you're going to gonna learn by shooting at moving game is how to quickly handle your rifle and acquire a sight picture, you know, probably all the things the boys were, were struggling with. And, you know, and, and, and these guys have hunted a lot, you know, cash that, that, that was, I mean, he's killed four or five animals, um, you know, an elk, three deer, um, at least, you know, he's, he's been around it before, but when you get a lot going on, like what happened with this hunt, um, you gotta be fast with your rifle. And so there's really no better practice than shooting at moving targets. Make sure that if you do it, number one, safety, you got, you gotta be safe. You gotta have the person that's rolling the tire, um, off to, off to your right or left, um, next to you, or preferably a little bit behind you. They cannot be in front of you. So sometimes you got to find a special place to be able to do that. It's taken me a, a few years to find places that I can do that and, and keep my, uh, my tire roller safe. And, um, so safety first, and obviously you're going to be shooting at a moving target. So you got to make sure that as that target, uh, moves down the hill, that, the background is going to change a little bit that there's nothing, you know, there's not a road out there, you know, obviously no houses or, you know, livestock or anything like that. You know, you, you, sometimes you got to hunt a little bit to find a place like this. And, um, but make sure that when the person rolls the tire, you don't tell them when, and you don't have a cartridge in the chamber. I like to have my gun on my shoulder. And, you know, I obviously tell the shooter I'm ready or the roller I'm ready, but I don't tell them when to roll the tire. I want everything, everything to be a surprise. And, you know, maybe, maybe my son waits a minute before he rolls it. So that once the tire starts rolling and, and I know it's, it's cleared, it's cleared him and I can shoot 
then I got to go through the whole process of unslinging my gun, getting my gun to the shoulder, um, uh, racking a cartridge into the chamber, all the stuff that you have to do in hunting that costs precious seconds you want to be able to do. And being able to acquire a sight picture quickly and make sure your gun's off safety. Now, I've been doing this on and off for 30 years, and I remember the first couple times I did it, and often anybody I take that does it, they don't even shoot it the first time you roll the tire for various reasons. Didn't get a get a cartridge chambered, or they jammed up the gun because they've never ran their uh, action quickly like that, um, or didn't get it off safety, you know, just or just once they got did get a sight picture, they just didn't know what to do. I mean, if you haven't done it before, you'll be surprised at how how you react, and it's always slower. So. You know, this is kind of a long sub-segment of this episode, but it's awesome practice. And over the uh, a couple of times of doing it and then helping friends with it, I got a lot faster with my rifle, a lot faster. And after this little elk hunt I just described, well, I need to do this with the boys. I've done it with Cash once, at least once, maybe twice, but I haven't done it with his friend. I just need to do a dedicated session, take them out, and really let them shoot at some rolling tires. Um, you, if you're a wing shooter, that that can help you get really fast. But you're getting fast with a different type of gun, and it's a different way of aiming. Uh, most most wing shooters, they're just pointing the gun. It's not as precise. They're not using an optic. You know, it's not a crosshair. But I still think there's some crossover value in, in getting a gun to your shoulder and acquiring a sight picture. Um, but you need to shoot rolling tires with your hunting rifle so that everything becomes second nature. Getting that safety off, acquiring a sight picture in that exact optic. You know, shotguns don't have optics, but, you know, er everything has to become automatic for you. And so I I can't uh, recommend it enough. And there will be a time, no matter how careful you hunt, that at some point you got to make a good shot or a fast shot. And as I said in my reading, you know, ideally we want to, if you hunt right, you're going to get a, um, a calm shot at a calm animal. That's, that's the gold standard. That's what we're looking for, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, let's see. Um, the bow that I mentioned in there, I did shoot that Athens bow. That was a good little bow. Um, I shot that clear till 2022 before I switched to this Matthews phase four. And, um, when I said in there, this is something, I think I've mentioned this on other episodes before when we were talking about the cold bow challenge, that um, I had written in my book that I can get the first shot in the kill zone out to 70 yards. Well, that wasn't cold bow, though. That was like, and so by cold bow, what I mean is uh, first arrow of the day, no practice after that first arrow, and then do it five days in a row. I could not do that with that Athens bow. But I put that in the book. I wasn't lying. Yeah, on a good day, I could walk out there and first arrow in the vitals at 70 yards. But then I may shoot 30 more arrows that day. And then the next day, walk out there and, you know, get lucky and do it again. But that's not typically how hunting is, especially backcountry hunt, back hunting. You don't get to practice that much. Now, hopefully, you know, if you've got a road camp, you've got a target there, you know, you've, you've got some time midday you're shooting. But I still find on the hunt that a lot of times for whatever, I'm lucky to get off a practice arrow or two a day. You know, sometimes you just, you know, stump shooting. You can't really do it with modern compounds. You're blowing up arrows that sinks too far into the wood. You know, back when everything was 170 feet a second, you literally could shoot into a rotten stump and get your arrow out. But... But, um, so I wanted to update that in the book a little bit that no, now I'm more like 55 to 60 on a cold bow with no practice, no warm up, and then no shots between days. I'm about 55 to 60. And that's why I've tried to, to, to shrink my, my range. Um, so I think, I think I've updated you with everything on that and, um, we'll get into, some other gear stuff um, on future episodes. Looks like I'm just jumping ahead here. Horses, optics. I wrote a little bit about clothing. That's a pretty short chapter. Footwear, 
Uh, deer camp, that's a big one, talking about the gear and deer camp. Uh, deer camp's important. In fact, for this hunt Travis and I are going on, I've been getting all the gear together for days. Uh, we're going to have a road camp, but we're going to be doing some backcountry spike and stuff. So I've got all that stuff ready. Camp is everything. You can't just survive out there. You have to thrive. You have to be be fresh. You have to be able to get rest at camp. So that, that's going to be a big chapter. We'll read that stuff future. And then tomorrow will be Sam's Tipsy Tuesday for our uh, Halloween episode 1031. He's got Rob Gearing coming on the podcast. Rob Gearing is the head of Spartan Manufacturing. They're a longtime rock slide sponsor, uh, manufacturer of high-end tripods, bipods, all the accessories that go along with that. Good stuff. We've done reviews on it. You can search any of that stuff on our homepage, but that'll be a good episode. I think they got some new gear coming out. Plus, Rob's just a fun guy to, to have on the episode. Uh, he's an Englishman. He's a Brit, but he doesn't talk in meters. He talks in yardage, so he's my kin. Um, I can't even convert meters to yards. Everything's yards. So, so Rob, when I hear you talking yards, man, you're speaking my language. But a good good guy to follow on Instagram. Jump over to his page. He's funny. Does some cool stuff with his gear. Uh, does chin-ups on his tripods, you know, stuff like that. Rob Gearing, G-E-A-R-I-N-G. I think the, the page will come up as Spartan. Go ahead and give them a follow. They'll be on the, on the episode tomorrow. And then you probably noticed a couple weeks ago, Ryan Avery just shows up out of nowhere, man, comes swooping in and does a rock cast episode. It was great. It was an episode on layering uh, with one of our writers, Mike Moore. I highly encourage you to go listen to that episode. Mike shares his layering system. Mike's got a ton of experience in the backcountry, former game warden, uh, now retired, just uh, hunting a lot. Um, doing gear reviews for rock slide, just a good guy to, to share his layering system. But, you know, just, just a surprise to have Ryan on the rock cast. You just never know when this guy is going to come swooping out of nowhere. And, and that's kind of how he is. You know, we've been running rock slide together since 2012. You know, he's a great business partner, but I just never know where he's at. I mean, he won't, he doesn't answer his phone. He's not answering his texts, I'm sending him emails. I mean, he's just gone. And then all of a sudden there he is, you know, he's, he's kind of like Sasquatch. Um, Kendall Card and I have talked about that, you know, kind of like at Expo, you know, we've been at Expo, you know, for three days, we've never seen him. And then all of a sudden there he is, man, he just appears like in the shadows and then he's gone. So you got to grab him while you can get him. It was great to have him on the rock cast. I hope he does more. Um, I got some background information that probably the reason that he, that he came on, he had a little extra time on his hand because his beloved 6.5 Creedmoor was in the shop. And, you know, that puts a lot of time on his hands when he can't shoot his Creedmoor. You know, he goes to the range every day. So I don't know what happened, but it was in the shop. I'm sure it was a big downer. And then I also heard that his best dress was at the laundromat. So he was waiting, waiting for that too. So I imagine when he gets that stuff back, we won't hear from him again. But Ryan, buddy, you are always welcome on the Rockcast. And love you, man. 